What impact has the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela had on the most vulnerable and marginalized elements of the population? Is there a legacy of white supremacy underlying the Venezuelan opposition? What role did Canada play in the 2019 coup attempt against the Maduro government? How does the 2019 coup in Venezuela figure into a broader plan for the region? How can social movements in the imperialist countries effectively construct progressive movements in solidarity with progressive forces in Venezuela, Latin America, and beyond? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we return to Venezuela to get an overview of the successes and challenges of the 20-year-old Bolivarian Revolution with three guests. We first hear from Venezuelan Canadian sociologist Maria Paez Victor about the makeup of and divisions within Venezuelan society and about the distinct impacts the revolution and foreign sanctions have had on the country. We next hear from Canadian foreign policy analyst, author and activist Eve Engler about Canada's motivations for and involvement in the 2019 coup. Finally, another Venezuelan Canadian, Nino Pagliccia, places Venezuela and the revolution within a larger imperial geostrategic context. On this week's program, Vive la Revolution! Will the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela survive the empire's war? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 4th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. A taste of what is in store was the fire on Jeddah's train station, which is the $7 billion-plus hub of MBS's 300-kilometer high-speed rail link to Mecca and Medina. The Arab street is consumed by rumors that the Houthis won't stop before they reach Mecca. As for the capabilities of the Yemeni Quds-1 cruise missile, here is a superb technical analysis which comes with a crucial insight in view of the UK, German, and French claims that Iran is behind the Saudi oil attacks. Quote, Notably, the Pentagon has not accused Iran of the strike and is keeping quiet, knowing full well that the Quds cruise missile came from Houthi territory. Unquote. After Abkak and Operation Nasrallah, to say that MBS is wallowing in a vicious blowback swamp is an understatement. That comes from the article, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, Must Shelve His Vicious War in Yemen, by Pepe Escobar, posted October 3rd, originally published on Asia Times. While the BBC report reveals a more comprehensive view of the daily slaughter in Afghanistan, than most media reports, it is still an incomplete picture. The BBC counted only 
the lowest confirmed number of people killed in each incident, dropping conflicting reports of higher casualties, and as the report said, quote, hundreds of reports were excluded and the true number of attacks and casualties could be much higher, unquote. The BBC also noted that Afghan government forces treat their own casualty figures as secret and refuse to confirm them, while the Taliban rejected the BBC's count of its casualties as, quote, baseless allegations, unquote, and government propaganda. The U.S. military has a long and sordid history of counting civilians it kills as enemy combatants from Vietnam to its current wars, so the Taliban's response is likely to be at least partially correct. But at least the BBC tried to systemically report war deaths from around the country in real time. That comes from the article Counting the Dead Through the Fog of War in Afghanistan by Nicholas J.S. Davies, posted October 2nd. The present candlelight demonstration started only a few weeks ago with 2,000, then 100,000, and now as many as 2 million. They were angry. They were very angry. They will do it again next Saturday, October 5th, with perhaps 3 million people. What is going on in the country of morning calm? It is no longer a country of calm. It may have to go through a long period of fight for the survival of democracy and a cleaner society. This second candlelight demonstration is perhaps a beginning of the final stage of cutting off the deep roots of corruption affecting every corner of the Korean society for the last 60 years under the conservative government. That comes from the article, The Second Candlelight Revolution in Korea, The People's Fight for the Survival of Clean Democracy, by Professor Joseph H. Chung, posted October 2nd. Aided and abetted by the U.S. government, the American military-industrial complex has erected an empire unsurpassed in history in its breadth and scope, one dedicated to conducting perpetual warfare throughout the earth. Although the U.S. constitutes only 5% of the world's population, America boasts almost 50% of the world's total military expenditure, spending more on the military than the next 19 biggest spending nations combined. Indeed, the Pentagon spends more on war than all 50 states combined spend on health, education, welfare, and safety. Unfortunately, this level of warmongering doesn't come cheap to the taxpayers who are forced to foot the bill. Having been co-opted by greedy defense contractors, corrupt politicians, and incompetent government officials, America's expanding military empire is bleeding the country dry at a rate of more than $32 million per hour. That comes from the article, Guns for Hire, No, the U.S. Government Shouldn't Be Using the Military to Police the Globe, by John W. Whitehead, posted October 1st, originally published on the Rutherford Institute. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. As longtime listeners of the Global Research News Hour are aware, this program is produced out of host station, a University of Winnipeg-based community radio station, CKUW 95.9 FM. And uh, this week, as we go to air on October 4th, is known at our station as Pass the Mic Week, where we give community members a taste to host and produce uh, uh, a show or a segment of a show. 
And uh, this week I thought I'd uh, reach out to a, uh, an associate. He's been very much involved in Venezuela solidarity activism over the last couple of years. His name is Brendan Devlin, and uh, he joins me here uh, in the production studio. So, Brendan, uh, thanks and, uh, for showing up, and uh, welcome. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Do you want to give our listeners a bit of background on, uh, on yourself? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Brendan Devlin. I'm a member of the Venezuela Peace Committee, which has been a uh, Venezuela solidarity group doing work in Winnipeg uh, and expressing concern and trying to um, make changes with regard to Canada's foreign policy towards Venezuela. Um, I'm also a master's student in politics at the University of Manitoba, uh, working on the relationship between Canadian capital and the Canadian state. But hopefully, I hope everyone will forgive me for my academic background. <laughs> No problem. So it's been 20 years since the start of the Bolivarian Revolution. So uh, I know that that seems to be the theme that you're uh, focused on. Could you give us a bit of an overview of the uh, the Bolivarian Revolution and its, its significance to today? Yeah, absolutely. So the Bolivarian Revolution is, is an extremely important moment in the history of Venezuela. And I think it represents, in many ways, a break from the domination of Venezuela by its overwhelmingly white propertied, wealthy, and male ruling class, uh, which has always been propped up and supported uh, by imperial powers, namely Spain and the United States. And now I think Canada is playing that same role. Uh, the, the revolution is, is called the Bolivarian Revolution in honor of uh, Simón Bolívar, who was a uh, liberator of many Venezuelan countries uh, from uh, namely Spanish colonialism in the 19th century, and that includes Venezuela. Uh, and he's he's an icon of resisting foreign domination uh, in the region. And so uh, Hugo Chavez and the social forces uh, that have been part of this revolutionary process have have taken uh, that name in his honor. Uh, you know, this is under the Bolivarian Revolution. This is the first time that the resources of the Venezuelan state and not to mention the natural resources of the country have been used to serve the needs of the masses of Venezuelan people. Venezuela, I mean... We, we often think about this region as being faced by a lot of instability and poverty, but Venezuela was long considered to be uh, one of the richest countries and most prosperous countries in the region. But until the Bolivarian Revolution, that prosperity and that wealth was, con was highly concentrated in a very small uh, group of people uh, who, again, were predominantly, uh, of course, much wealthier, but also whiter, also male, um, and also served the interests, uh, above all, of foreign imperial powers, namely the United States. Uh, you point to these divisions, and I guess it's important to remember that uh, Venezuela is not some sort of a monolith where it's the Venezuelan people versus the brutal dictatorial Maduro. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's uh, you know... A common mainstream media narrative. Yeah, it's all, it's all mostly, you know, different versions of that same exact story. But of course, Venezuela is, you know, we would never look at it... At, a uh, uh, Western country that way. We understand that Western countries intuitively are, you know, highly divided, but so are other countries. So is Venezuela. Venezuela, like the US and Canada, uh, are very divided along the lines of race, class, gender, and more. Venezuela, of course, is also a colonized nation and its indigenous peoples continue to exist and maintain uh, a complicated relationship with the Venezuelan state. Okay. Well, uh, Brendan, I, uh, I think that's all very intriguing and looking forward to hearing your interviews. Awesome. Thanks again for having me on. Dr. Maria Paez-Victor is a sociologist, a former member at large of the Law Commission of Ontario Board of Governor. 
She was also the te- teaching the sociology of health and medicine, as well as health and environmental policies at the University of Toronto, and is an active member of the Latin American community in Canada. Dr. Paez Victor was born in Venezuela and educated in Caracas, New York, Mexico City, England, and Canada. She has 20 years of national and international experience in policy analysis and environmental assessment with expertise in the areas of health, environment, and energy. Uh, Dr. Victor, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me on your program. Earlier, I described the Bolivarian Revolution and its historic impact on Venezuela and the different people of Venezuela. Uh, so basically, I'd like to put this to you is just how has the Bolivarian Revolution affected uh, the people of Venezuela, and in particular, marginalized people in Venezuela? Well, the impact of the Bolivarian Revolution on Venezuela has been, um, the, the only word I can think of is monumental. Uh, because for so many decades after our independence, it has been the elites that have governed. You had an elite that was linked to big oil. Oil is a very important uh, topic in Venezuela. It, 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 it completely um, dominates its economy. So when Hugo Chavez came to power, one of the first things that he said in his campaign was that he was going to change, he was going to give Venezuela a new constitution because the old constitution allowed that elite rule. There were so many loopholes in it. And certainly that was the cornerstone of the changes to the lifestyle and the lives of Venezuelan people. Because he had a referendum asking people, do you want a new constitution? The referendum said yes. Then you had an election of the people who would, who would do this, be members of the assembly that would change the constitution. When the constitution was made, then there was another referendum, do you accept this constitution? And it was an overwhelming yes. So what did this constitution um, uh, uh, mean? And it really, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but it, it just set the tone. One of the things that it did was that it enshrined human rights, but not just the civil human rights, you know, the right to, to speech and the right to uh, assembly and all of this, but the social rights. So it said Venezuelans have the right to clean air and clean environment. The, the Venezuelans have a right to have... Um, um, uh, services for health. Venezuelans have the right to have education. The Venezuelans have a right to housing. So all of this meant that the state was um, uh, mandated to, for these public services. So that was huge. So for the first time, the oil uh, revenues of Venezuela were used for public housing, for public health, public education in Venezuela, the education is free from a nursery, from nurseries all over the country to university. It, they are free. And in housing, in the, just, just these last five years, these terrible years of, of, of economic uh, problems, um, the Venezuelan government has built almost, almost three million uh, units, housing units for the people. Uh, this in a very communitarian way, participatory way. So um, I would say that the um, Venezuelan Revolution, uh, the Bolivarian Revolution, did, first of all, change the legal 
the legal basis of the state. Second of all, it gave the people a boost in terms of its identity uh, and its unity, the, the identity of being Venezuelan, of its history, of its culture, and more than that, its future. So national identity was uh, resurrected. It was practically dead. And the third thing, of course, is that the oil revenue was used for the first time, not for the pockets of the elite, but for all the public services and infrastructure that the country needed. This was a huge impact to Venezuelans. It was a terrible threat to the hegemony of the United States and capitalism because all of a sudden there was a socialist revolution that was successful. Canada and the United States, of course, and their regional allies have been staunch opponents of the Bolivarian Revolution and the government that's helped pushed it forward. Instead, these governments have aligned with the opposition to the Bolivarian government and the Bolivarian Revolution. Can you give us some insight as to the character, namely the class character, the racial makeup of the Venezuelan opposition? What kinds of impacts would it have on the Venezuelan population were the opposition to gain power? Well, uh, there are two questions there. The first one is the racial and class composition. I, I mentioned that previously Venezuela had been um, governed by elites. Now, these elites overwhelmingly were white or clear-skinned. And the ideology behind that comes from way back when the traditional elites were a slave owner. And so they have ingrained in them, uh, uh, they despise uh, the people of Venezuela, their own people, you know. The class distinctions have been horrendous in Venezuela. You went to, a, to, to ask for a job, you have to put your picture on it so people could see your face, and then you had to say, well, you went to primary school, and then they would locate you on the sort of social scale. Um, and, of course, this meant that, all, uh, that the people with lighter skin were always the ones at, at the top. Um, indigenous peoples were, were invisible. And the only ones who paid any attention to the indigenous peoples, really, uh, were anthropologists, and some of them were very vile, and some were missionaries also, some of them very vile. And so they were like a little anecdote, like uh, you would say, oh, you know, we have a... We have this unusual little bear in our woods, you know. It was like a, a, a something totally secondary. So the one of the things that happened that Chavez was a man of mixed Negro and Indian uh, descendant. And so when he became elected, the vitriol against this man before he had done anything, okay, before he had uh, done any kind of policy or said any kind of statement, it was all over the Internet and the emails that I got, uh, you know, uh, saying that he was a, a monkey, a nothing, a this, this, uh, this Negro. This, uh, it was just terrible. So but the same thing has happened with Maduro. What, what do they have against Maduro, who is also a man of mixed race, like most of us Venezuelans are? But he was born in a very poor urban um, barrio, a little poor urban um, neighborhood. And... He, for nine years, worked full-time as a bus driver in Caracas. Oh, well, of course, a bus driver. How can we have a bus driver? 
as you know the young, uh, the president of Venezuela. So you you see the classism, and you see the horrible, absolutely horrible racism. During the the um, uh, there were these um, street demonstrations, which by the way were carried out by paramilitary, not by opposition uh, people. I know because I know lots of the opposition people, and they never sent their children out there to do this. These were all um, um, sort of professional saboteurs who were out there who were paid. You know what they did? They burned alive this one young man who actually died and several others who didn't die. They burned them alive because they had dark skin and looked chavista. So the the racial uh, component and the classic classicist uh, component of, of bigotry is tremendous because the elite that has governed Venezuela is a white supremacist elite in the Latin American context. Now, this, your second question is the threat to Canada and the U.S. Well, the threat comes from two uh, 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 industrial blocks that you will understand immediately. In the United States, it's the oil. It is the oil. They want this. The largest deposit of oil in the world is in Venezuela, and it takes a tanker to go from the Middle East to Louisiana, where the refineries are, um, about uh, you know, 17, 18 days to get there. And it takes only four days for an, for an oil tanker to go from Venezuela to Louisiana. So it's very close to them. And big oil, which is one of the most formidable, they are some of the most formidable corporations in the world. They have um, an inordinate uh, influence over the United States um, uh, government. They also have, <laughs> I would say, amazing influence over the Canadian, because, you know, uh, there is no such a thing as Canadian oil. There is no such thing as Alberta oil. It all belongs to the corporation. So oil is the first thing that... Um, uh, you know, is threatened by a country that wants to be independent. And the second is um, very much Canadian, because Canada is the headquarters of the world mining industry. Every large mining industry in the world has a headquarters in Canada somewhere. And this mining industry, in particular, the gold mining, and here you can uh, bring up the specter of barrack gold, have a stranglehold upon the Minister of Freeland, Christopher Freeland, and Trudeau. They want the second largest oil deposit in the world, which is in Venezuela. So all of this is about looting Venezuela. And indeed, um, the Alfred Desaya, who, uh, Professor Alfred Desaya, who is the UN Rapporteur for Human Rights at the UN, went to Venezuela several times and made reports saying that these so-called economic sanctions are no such thing. They are an aggression against Venezuela, and I'm quoting him, it is a looting campaign, a savage economic war against Venezuela. And this is what they have done. They have looted Venezuelan, um, uh, all, all, all that they ever had out, outside the country in, uh, in, in banks, they have looted um, and it has been atrocious. They just took over Sidco. They took over the gold that was in, in, in several banks, especially the, um, the Canadian, uh, uh, the United States Bank. And uh, it, they have looted 
$32 trillion of Venezuelan assets. $32 trillion. You, you can understand that this is, this is a future of the country. This is, this is immense. I don't think Venezuela will ever get it back. Economists Mark Weisbrot and Jeffrey Sachs released a report for the Center on Economic and Policy Research last year that claimed that the sanctions uh, against Venezuela have resulted in the deaths of 40,000 people in 2018. Now, as you've, uh, you've illustrated, this is one of the main weapons that Canada and the U.S. have used in response to the perceived threat of Venezuela. But could you put a human face on these sanctions? What yes, is your no understanding? Sanction. sanction is a legal term, and it refers to a, a legal sort of punishments that can be taken by the United Nations, not one nation in particular. So this is what the United States is doing, and drag Canada into it, and convince several other countries, and it's actually blackmailing countries, um, so that they, uh, Venezuela can't uh, work on the, uh, on the market. Um, this has meant that Venezuela cannot buy medicine and food in the international market. Now, this is devastating. People with, um, uh, with diabetes that need insulin every day, people with HIV, uh, people with any chronic disease that needs constant, um, you know, and special medicines, they can't, you can't buy them because they, big pharma won't sell it to Venezuela. But these are very special medicines that are all patent. Venezuela can't all of a sudden say, oh, well, we're going to make the, these HIV antiviral medicine here today. I mean, this is a, a, a very complicated thing. The Venezuela doesn't have the expertise in which to do that. So people have died. 40,000, but this is only in one year, my friend. In one year, 40,000 Venezuelans have died, and most of them have been um, uh, children, uh, women and men who had uh, you know, chronic diseases and chronic needs. There were these, I think there were about 12 children who were in, 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 in uh, Italy, and they were waiting for um, a, a bone transplant. Now, bone transplant is, again, a, an extremely difficult operation that Venezuela did not have the capacity to do, and they needed these special medicines in order to do it. And when Venezuela sent the money to a Portuguese bank, so that that Portuguese bank would pass it on to the Italian foundation or hospital that was doing it. Do you know what the Portuguese bank did? It took it. It looted it. It kept it for itself. It said, no, we won't. And so when Esola said, well, send us back the money, no, they kept it. So this is why the Salas says this is an all-out looting of Venezuelan assets. These international banks have stolen as in this savage economic war. And do you know what? One of those children died. A little 10-year-old uh, just couldn't wait. Uh, Canada got the money there somehow, and that foundation actually did some of the operations on its own for charity. But th this is what's happening there. Uh, food, uh, well, Venezuela is able to... to uh, this has been, thank goodness, for the uh, communal councils. The communal councils are the ones who have been feeding Venezuelans with their uh, little markets, with their um, uh, the, the agriculture that they are growing. And thank goodness for Russia and China, which have been so generous. Their planes have come in and their boats have come in with tons and tons of, of flour and sugar and, and all kinds of food that people 
needed. So it is because of our wonderful allies, and not to mention, of course, Cuba. Cuba has given us their their expertise. They can't give us, you know, a ton of food, but they can give us the medicines that they have and their doctors and such. So we have had these wonderful, wonderful support from Russia and China, and their help has saved Venezuelan lives. Now, I want to say this on the radio. Canada has blood on its hands. These 40,000 Venezuelans in one year are due also to Canada, its interference, its Lima group, Krista Freeland and Trudeau, and one day they will be hauled before the International Criminal Court to, um, uh, to pay for this terrible crime against a friendly country that has never done any harm to, to Venezuela. No Canadian that I know of has ever been harmed by anything that the Venezuelan government has ever done. And I think Canadians should now, in this, in this moment that we have elections, go to the, to the candidates' meeting and say to these candidates what is happening, that Canada, without going through Parliament, is at war with a smaller, more vulnerable country for no reason in the world. And if they stand on their own oh, democracy and human rights and all of that, that is, that is rubbish. Why aren't they then doing something about Saudi Arabia, where they are still beheading people, where they are still harassing women? Defending democracy is ridiculous. They are defending a, supreme, a white supremacist elite that wants to again control all the riches of Venezuela so that they can hand it over to their business partners, the large oil and mining corporations of the world. I really appreciate you coming on today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I wish we could uh, continue on this uh, on this path. Um, well, thank you th- so much for your you insights. So You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Eve Engler is a Montreal-based activist and author. He's published 10 books, uh, most recently, Left, Right, Marching to the Beat of Imperial Canada, uh, also A Propaganda System, How Canada's Government, Corporations, Media, and Academia Sell War and Exploitation, and uh, Classic, the Black Book on Canadian Foreign Policy. Most recently, Eve uh, founded the, or helped found the Disruption Network of Canada, which is a page dedicated to activists who are committed to using peaceful, direct action to expose the failings and empty rhetoric of Canada's liberal and conservatives who have monopolized federal power for decades with the complicity of the mainstream media. Eve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, uh, to start off, um, you've been writing about Canada's role in Venezuela for quite a while now. Can you describe Canada's role in the 2019 coup attempt against the Venezuelan government? Yeah, the Canadian government's been right at the forefront, uh, helped build the international coalition to uh, 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 recognize uh, Juan Guaido, the head of the National Assembly, as the president, uh, helped support opposition groups, bring opposition groups in Venezuela behind uh, uh, that effort. Uh, uh, Canada's four rounds of sanctions against Venezuelan officials brought uh, Venezuela to the International Criminal Court, repeated uh, condemnation of human rights record or democratic record in Venezuela, 
completely out of proportion with, with, with reality, um, has been pressuring government in the hemisphere, uh, particularly in the Caribbean, where Canada brought influence to, to join the uh, campaign against uh, the Venezuelan government, helped found the, with Peru the, the Lima group of governments opposed to the, uh, the Maduro government, um, helped support or fund opposition groups within Venezuela, um, the Canadian government has been really right at the forefront of a pretty uh, open effort to uh, to overthrow uh, Nicolas Maduro's government. And just to follow up to that um, briefly, why? Why is Canada threatened by the Bolivarian Revolution and the Bolivarian governments? I think there's, there's a sort of a two-part to that. The part of it is that Canada's you know, historically Canadian foreign policy has been driven by empire, historically British, today American, and... Uh, Clearly, the Bolivarian process has been something that has threatened uh, U.S. Uh, grip in the region um, in all kinds of different ways. Uh, alongside that, um, there is the fact that there are Canadian corporations um, that uh, are not happy or were not happy with the, the, the Chavez government, um, particularly in the mining sector, uh, the gold mining sector, a um, number of major conflicts between Canadian mining companies and the Venezuelan government, but also a, a, a little bit of conflict within the oil sector and the banking sector of Canadian companies that were angered by the uh, social democratic, socialistic reforms that were pursued in, in, in Venezuela. All right. And many seemed quite surprised at Canada's participation in the attempted coup in Venezuela this year. But I'm wondering if we should be surprised. As, as a settler colonial state, Canada was founded on the violent dispossession and genocide of indigenous peoples. And as we saw with the Canadian invasion of unceded Wet'suwet'en territory in January, Canada continues to deny indigenous nations their right to self-determination. Should we be really surprised that they're doing the same to poor nations in the global south? Is this inconsistent with Canadian foreign policy? shouldn't be that surprised. Uh, we, don't, we don't have to go as, as, as broad as, as the whole history of, of dispossession of First Nations here and, and, and you know how Canada was um, an extension of British Empire um, and, and you know, the, the continued uh, dispossession of, of Indigenous people. You can just look at really quite narrowly look at Canada's reaction to other uh, um, uh, coup efforts, uh, U.S.-backed U.S. instigated uh, coup efforts uh, to overthrow social democratic or socialist-minded uh, presidents in the hemisphere, and you find that, you know, going from uh, our bends in Guatemala in 1954 to to uh, to Dominican Republic in uh, the mid 60s uh, to uh, Allende in Chile in 73 to um, uh, Manuel Zelaya in Honduras in 2009. To uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide in, in uh, Haiti in, in 2004, um, and other examples, uh, Canada has consistently aligned with with um, with the with anti-democratic efforts to uh, to uh, for of Washington to decide who is uh, who is you know the the, the, the correct ruler of a, of a country. So so no, it, it's not. Uh, um, something that I think people should be that surprised at if you know a bit of the history of Canada's relationship, Canada's foreign policy in general, but and Canada's relationship to the hemisphere more specifically. But 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 I think that the, the Venezuela um, issue and the, the intervention in Venezuela 
the Canadian government, the Trudeau government, has been pursuing over the past uh, you know, eight or nine months in a very, is a very open, uh, explicit uh, form of uh, regime change and imperialism. They're not really hiding it. It's, it's all doing, you know, being done quite in the open. I think there's something somewhat unique of the this depth and brazenness of, uh, of Canadian policy trying to get rid of the Maduro government. That, I do think, is, is, is somewhat uh, different in the case of you know the 2004 coup in Haiti, where Canada played a, a really central role in, in ousting the, the Aristide government and then supporting a, a brutal um, two-plus-year two uh, uh, dictatorship that killed thousands. Um, that was mostly done under uh, the media spotlight. The, it was, you know, there were some elements that were you know pretty public, but but other elements that were quite kind of uh, off the off the agenda. Um, but but in the case of Venezuela, uh, the, the the liberal government has really uh, you know just it's been right out right out in the open, and it's and it's received even a decent amount of, of media attention. Of course, it's all being it's all premised on an incredible campaign of. Uh, demonization against the uh, Maduro government—that that is part of what legitimates it—but it, but it's done pretty, uh, pretty out in the open. All right. And uh, speaking of Haiti and Canada's role in ousting Jean Baptiste Aristide, you actually wrote earlier this year uh, comparing Canada's role in Haiti and Venezuela, and you argue that Canada's role in Haiti is quite hypocritical when compared with its role in Venezuela. How do you compare Canada's role in Haiti to that of Venezuela? I wonder if you could expand on that thought for us. Well, on one hand, in Haiti, you have a situation where there's a president that has almost no support. I mean, really, the polling is not is not great in Haiti, but it wouldn't at all surprise me if we're talking about under 10% of the population um, and 90% of the population wanting the president to go, and, and not just wanting the president to go in a sort of passive way, but... Uh, mass de- demonstrations, uh, multiple general strikes, uh, including one that's ongoing right now, uh, effectively shutting down much of local plants. Um, and uh, uh, so in Haiti, it's, it's very clear that the Jovenel Moise has very little popular support, a huge amount of, of dislike from the population. Uh, in, in, in Venezuela, I think the situation is actually much more divided, where you, where you do have, you know, a, a, a 30, maybe 30 percent of the population that's sort of against Maduro, kind of no matter what. Uh, another 30 percent, you know, with Maduro, um, uh, and then you know, 30 or 40 percent that's that's somewhere sort of in the middle. Generally, not particularly inclined for for uh, these, you know, sanctions and, and the potential of a U.S. invasion, um, but but it's sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, in the case of, of Venezuela, uh, it's an all all hands on deck effort to oust the government, um, which has, um, I wouldn't say uh, impeccable uh, democratic credentials, but has um, uh, genuine democratic con- uh, credentials in terms of Maduro's government. Certainly, the first election was is totally totally legitimate. The second one's, uh, I think, a little bit more complicated. But in the bigger picture, with regards to what the opposition has done, I think it's a relatively legitimate uh, process. Uh, in the case of Jovenel Moise in, in Haiti, it's a, a very dubious electoral uh, legitimacy alongside uh, incredible uh, popular uh, opposition and, and revolt. And 
the only reason Jovenel Moïse is still in power, is, or even came to power in the first place, but certainly is still in power, is because of his support from, from Washington and Ottawa. Um, so this is, you know, this is the government in, in, in Haiti that's incredibly repressive. Canada's the Canadian paid for financed, uh, trained, uh, diplomatically backed police force that has killed dozens and dozens of demonstrators in, in, in recent months. Um, um, so, so it's, it's the, if you take a look at the two issues, you find just incredible hypocrisy in, uh, in Canadian policy. And it, it, it strongly suggests that the motivation for uh, oh, uh, trying to oust Maduro is not about because of you know human rights questions or democ- democracy questions, but because the Maduro government is is so uh, is, is you know is viewed as a threat to corporate and uh, imperial interests. Uh, when you take a look at their policy in Haiti, um, that becomes quite clear that that's what the motivation is, is in, in in Venezuela. Excellent. Thank you. And be, before I let you go, uh, I, I should comment on we have, of course, we have an election coming up. I'm curious if you see any um, uh, ray of light in this election or if you think to, to push Canada to adopt uh, a better in, and more internationalist foreign policy, we need to go beyond electoral politics this time around. I don't see a ray of light uh, in terms of Canadian foreign policy. I see, I see just a question of less bad um, you know, in the very unlikely scenario that the NDP would make uh, the next government would, I don't even, I see that being a little bit better than the current situation, but, but far, far from what would um, be, you know, described as a just Canadian foreign policy. So, so, but I think there are differences. I think that, you know, the Conservatives, Trudeau's foreign policy is, is really terrible, but, but uh, Andrew Scheer has already made, made clear that his, his foreign policy is essentially... Um, we support all the bad things that Trudeau is doing. We just want to the few things that aren't bad. We just want to we, we want to turn those. We want to you know reverse those. That's essentially his his foreign policy. So it's even worse, I think, in the Andrew Scheer direction. Um, but but I don't think I think what we need to do uh, is it's a, it's a whole question of changing the political culture in this country. And and there's you know voting is one part of that. I'm personally going to end up voting for the NDP because in my writing that's the battle between the Liberals and the NDP and. And the NDP candidate is a good, good NDP candidate in my writing, um, but but I simultaneously have been you know challenging the NDP. I've, I've actually intervened with Jagmeet Singh on two two occasions for his question of Palestine solidarity. So so I think we need to certainly. Uh, I think it's in many instances it makes sense to vote NDP or Green and Green in some instances um, uh, as a way to block or to, to lessen liberal or conservative uh, uh, support. But but we need to be challenging the whole political culture if we w- really want a, a, a more just Canadian foreign policy. Eve, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Uh, I really appreciate your insights on all of this. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks very much. next guest is Nino Pagliccia. Uh, he has two master's degrees from Stanford University and is a retired researcher on Canada-Cuba collaborative projects at the University of British Columbia. He has published many peer-reviewed, peer-reviewed articles and has contributed chapters to books on topics about Cuba, the Cuban healthcare system, and solidarity. He's been a longtime activist and has organized groups to do voluntary work in Cuba for almost 15 years. Nino, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
All right. So in participating in this coup against Venezuela, Canada has allied itself with a number of countries in the region through the Lima Group and beyond. Can you tell us about this alliance that Canada has joined? Um, yes. To, um, to give some perspective, um, let's remember that Canada was already using taxpayer money to destabilize the Venezuela in 2014 with the Harper government. However, um, Canada's full-scale new direction in foreign policy uh, started with the appointment of Christia Freeland as Minister of Foreign Affairs in January 2017 by the Trudeau government with her baggage of fascist uh, pedigree, as we know. She came from uh, being Minister of International Trade, where she would have heard many complaints of lost business in Venezuela from Canadian mining corporations. Crystal X, one of them, is pursuing today billions of dollars in U.S. courts as compensation from uh, Venezuelan assets seized by the U.S. government. In 2017, Venezuela was an 18-year-old strong Bolivarian revolution and a survivor of a coup attempt supported by the U.S. in 2002. The first alliance of the Trudeau government for active regime change in Venezuela took place in August 2017 when the Lima Group was formed under the leadership of Christian Freeland, still active today and often referred to as the Lima Cartel. This is an illegitimate splinter group of about a dozen right-wing regional governments from the Organization of American States out of 33 member states of the OAS, with the single goal of producing a regime change in Venezuela. Canada basically has joined some of the worst offenders of human rights and judicial order in the region while accusing Venezuela of having a dictatorship. Countries of the Lima Group have appalling political records with humiliating political histories like Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Guatemala, etc., Paraguay, and Peru. What makes the group illegitimate is that its actions are illegal and break several international laws, charters, and resolutions of the United Nations and the OAS that codify no intervention in other states. Canada is breaking international law. Speaking of alliances, it is important to mention that barely eight months after Freeland's appointment, Canada's foreign policy alignment with the U.S. State Department was formalized when an association between Ottawa and Washington was formed on September 5th, 2017. Notice this. The association called on its two members to take economic measures against Venezuela and persons close to the uh, Venezuelan government. Just two weeks after, on August, on, the, pardon me, on September 22, 2017, Canada imposed its own unilateral coercive measures, that is, sanctions against Venezuela, Venezuelan officials and other individuals. Now, knowing how slowly bureaucracy moves, 
this pace of the Trudeau government towards a direct attack on Venezuela in 2017 is spectacular. Corporate media continues parity about um, 50 countries that have declared the Maduro government illegitimate and have recognized the self-appointed uh, interim president, Juan Guaido. Canada is one of them. But this is not a formal alliance. The reality is that a handful of those 50 countries have long histories of colonialism, racism, still practiced today, right-wing ideologies, class struggles, and rampant capitalism with the imperial domination of the U.S. and Canada over the other countries. What we need to notice is that this is barely a fourth of the 193 U.S. member states of the OAS, of the United Nations, and also that just this year 120 countries had delegates attending a meeting of the non-aligned movement in Venezuela, implicitly recognizing the legitimate government of Nicolas Maduro by their presence. All right, thank you. That was a, an extremely comprehensive overview. Um, and to take this a bit farther, many may not know that this regional alliance is not targeting just Venezuela, but also have their eyes on the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, as well as the revolutionary government in Cuba. Can you discuss how the coup in Venezuela forms part of a broader plan for the region? Mm. Yeah, um, first, we must recognize that this uh, regional, uh, regional alliance is not really such an alliance in the same way that slave owners and slaves did not form an alliance. Um, we have the imperial power of the day, the U.S., now joined by Canada, that have made a claim that the region, meaning the resources of the region, belongs to them. In order to sustain that claim, they have used all sorts of political and financial tools to establish puppet governments friendly to the U.S., that worked very well until Hugo Chavez and his socialism of the 21st century came into the picture and found fertile terrain for a strong progressive movement that sought sovereignty and independence from U.S. domination. In recent years, that movement has had some setbacks. At the same time, the seed of that movement in the Bolivarian Revolution remains strong. This explained, explains the determination for regime change and attempted coups in Venezuela. Now, the U.S. is also determined to wipe out any trace of resistance to U.S. domination. That includes Nicaragua and Cuba together with Venezuela, infamously called the Troika tyranny by former security advisor John Bolton. I call them the Troika resistance. Canada is in a tough spot in relation to um, Cuba. After uninterrupted diplomatic relations after the Cuban Revolution, not even Christian Freeland knows how to make Cuba an enemy. She has tried by reducing consular personnel and services to Cubans recently and has met three times with the Cuban Minister of Foreign Affairs, Bruno Rodriguez, in her attempt to break Cuba-Venezuela friendship. This 
will never happen. In fact, we call on the Trudeau government to end all sanctions and regime change attempts in Venezuela and reestablish normal relations as it has done with Cuba. Canada should practice a foreign policy based on solidarity and not on warmongering. Venezuela and its Bolivarian revolution are still under attack. Latin America, for that matter, is under attack. But we cannot lose Venezuela. That would mean a return to the hegemonic and colonial domination by the U.S. and Canada in the region. I believe that the majority of Canadians does not agree with the Canadian government policy against Venezuela. I sense that you're right about that. And on that note, uh, I'd like to ask a, a question for organizers out there. How can, what can socialist move, or sorry, what can social movements in the imperialist countries do? How can we effectively construct progressive movements in solidarity with progressive forces in, La- in Venezuela, in Latin America, and beyond? How can we effectively incorporate an internationalist vision into our own organizing? Well, um, to, uh, to have a truly internationalist vision uh, requires to educate ourselves about international struggles and make them our own. Uh, we need to compare and analyze those struggles with our own in Canada until we understand that the causes of our class struggle are the same everywhere. We must truly believe in the slogan, an injury to one is an injury to all. We must practice solidarity uh, first and foremost. That in turn requires that we must delve in following foreign relations, starting from our own country. Foreign policy determines character of nations, while domestic policy reflects ideological nuances along the lines of class struggle and capitalism. But to understand how imperialism affects us, for example, we must understand foreign policy. When it comes to foreign relations, political parties rarely disagree in any country, like Canada and the U.S. and and more generally uh, Western countries. They come from a mentality of domination, plunder, and exploitation. They have done that for centuries, and it is not going to be different now. It's an easy source of wealth. We must challenge that. It is important to read beyond the rhetoric of foreign policy actions and always ask the question, Why is Canada taking such a strong position on that particular issue in a foreign country, Venezuela, for for example? What is the implication for Canada domestically? If we focus our attention on questions like these, I truly believe we would begin to build a strong and common foundation to construct a progressive movement. Excellent. Nino? Thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, I really appreciate your time and insight. Uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brandon. Thank you for, um, for having me.
So we just heard from um, Maria Paez Victor, Eve Engler, and Nino Pagliccia uh, on this uh, overview of the Bolivarian Revolution in, Rev- in, in Venezuela. And of course, our guest interviewer this week was Brendan Devlin. So, Brendan, thank you so much. And uh, I, I don't know, is there anything you'd like to say uh, in closing uh, in terms of what uh, you gleaned from that, uh, from those? chats um thanks again uh michael for your help in putting together this program thanks again to uh maria to eve and to nino uh there i really appreciated hearing from them and personally learned a lot from listening to them Uh, and i guess i just want to emphasize that yeah i think these the struggles that have been taking place in venezuela over the past 20 years are struggles that are relevant to our struggles here to struggles against capitalism to struggles against racism against patriarchy and struggles for a more uh, egalitarian and democratic vision of uh, of the world. Um, so I think this is something that we in the imperial core should be very aware of. We should be aware of other struggles going on, and we should support these struggles. We should try to the best uh, to the best of our abilities to incorporate an internationalist vision into our own organizing, uh, and that means I think supporting the Bolivarian Revolution and recognizing that the governments of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro have been essential in that revolutionary process. Uh, you can have your your gripes with the government. There, there's no doubt, but there's there's no getting around the fact that the the Venezuelan state under Chavez and under Maduro have been essential to empowering the Venezuelan masses who drive the Bolivarian Revolution. Okay, Brendan, thanks again. The week from October 5th to October 12th is dubbed Space for Peace Week. Organized by the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, this is an international week of protest to stop the militarization of space. Our special guest on next week's show will be Bruce Gagnon, the Maine-based Secretary Coordinator of the Global Network. He will speak about the advancement of the militarization of space under President Trump and efforts to reverse these trends. We hope you'll join us then. Listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Many thanks this week to guest host Brendan Devlin. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. 